The Guardian. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, we speak to Joss Garman from Plain Stupid about the return of the eco-protest. We hear from the fashion designer Helen Storey about a new concept in fashion, the biodegradable dress. And I report from California on why the disappearance of millions of honeybees is an environmental disaster. This is Environment Weekly from guardian.co.uk. With me in the studio, I'm joined by Leo Hickman, The Guardian's ethical living editor. Hello. And Joss Garman, one of the founders of the campaign group Plain Stupid. Hello. Just quickly, guys, what do you think of Boris Johnson's green makeover, Joss? It's not very green, let's face it. I mean, this is the guy who applauded Bush for pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol a few years ago. And now he's come out against the third runway because it would be political suicide if he didn't. There's a lot of votes in West London and millions of Londoners are really pissed off about the third runway. About 70% are against the third runway, but he's just proposing a new airport in the east instead. He's proposing bringing back the route master as well, isn't he? Well, that's that's not exactly the best environmental idea, I would say. Having spent a childhood standing behind those things, I agree it's good fun jumping up a ball them, but to claim that the Root Master is an eco-solution, I think, is slightly misguided. OK, let's find out what's been happening in the environment news this week. Banish the bags, the Daily Mail. The big story this week was the Mail's high-profile campaign to reduce the number of plastic bags that supermarkets hand out. The paper devoted no fewer than its first nine pages to the issue. It called on readers to petition the Prime Minister to stop the 13 billion plastic bags given away in Britain every year. The day after the launch, M&S announced it would charge its food customers 5p a bag. And the following day, Gordon Brown signalled that he may amend the climate change bill to impose a plastic bag levy on supermarkets. This is what you've been saying on the blogs. The hypocrisy of the Daily Mail is staggering. Plastic bags are actually a relatively small part of the waste stream. There are much bigger hits to be had in terms of recycling and waste management, yet as soon as any sort of progressive idea is introduced, such as a pay-as-you-throw scheme, the mail reported as a bin tax and a threat to Middle England. In France, hypermarkets banned plastic bags two years ago. It was hard to adapt at first, but when you'd forgotten your reusable bag five times and each time had to buy a new one for more than one euro each, you quickly learned not to leave it at home. We should introduce a charge of at least 50 pence per bag for a year just to get people into the habit and then ban all plastic bags from being sold at checkouts. The campaigner Rebecca Hosking, our guest on last week's show, has welcomed the Mail's campaign. She says green issues shouldn't be the preserve of the left-wing press. Leo, what do you think of the Mail's campaign? Hypocritical or sincere? Well, on one level, obviously, it's clearly a good thing. I agree with it. And to see them using their considerable influence and might to muster up instant support, it seemed, from Marks and Spencers and Gordon Brown and and everyone else. I slightly do worry about the prioritising here, where plastic bags rank on the kind of grand list of our environmental concerns. I'd have loved to have seen the Mail come out on a huge aviation campaign or reduce our car-loving ways or whatever it may be there's far bigger fish to fry. Joss, it's arguable that the best way to change the government's mind is not to protest on the Houses of Parliament, but to actually get the Daily Mail behind you. Well, I think it's green everything. Everyone talks green now. And so now it's about cutting through the greenwash and trying to reach what are the genuinely significant issues. Sure, like plastic bags are bad, but Gordon Brown's trying to build new coal-fired power stations. He's trying to build new runways all over the place. These are much bigger issues and it could be a distraction. I mean, in 1988, 
Thatcher said we're all environmentalists now and at the same time she had a £23 billion road building scheme and so you do wonder whether John Cruddis when he was talking about David Cameron's green agenda said it was a bit like McDonald's salad menu and it's a bit like that with the Daily Mail I mean just a few months ago they were denying that climate change is even caused by people whilst it's great as Leo said it's not really focusing on the big issues. Airport protesters take to Parliament's roof The Guardian Days after Greenpeace protesters scaled a British Airways plane to protest against plans for a third runway at Heathrow, campaigners took their message to Parliament. Five activists from the campaign group Plain Stupid got onto the roof and unfurled huge banners saying no third runway and BAA HQ. The protest coincided with the final day of the consultation on Heathrow expansion. Plain Stupid said it wanted to highlight the collusion between the government and BAA, the airport's operator. Joss, Gordon Brown condemned the action. He said decisions should be made in the Houses of Parliament, not on the roof. What's your response? Well, the plain stupid protesters came down just around the time of PMQs, but they said that they wanted Gordon Brown to know what it was like to have an inconvenience above your head that you didn't ask for. And I think that if the decisions were actually made in the House, we probably wouldn't be facing what we're facing right now. But the fact of the matter is that BAA, who were the ones who want to actually build the third runway, who were one of the consultees, actually wrote parts of the consultation. And we know this from documents that were released under Freedom of Information. You know, when you've got all four mayoral candidates in London against the third runway, you've got the majority of Londoners against the third runway, You've got 100 elected politicians, councillors in West London who represent 2 million people having to bring out newspaper advertisements to lobby the government because they don't want the third runway. Then where's the evidence of democratic participation and, you know, transparency? Gordon Brown announced he wanted a third runway and then launched a consultation into it. This is just classic Brown. You can totally understand why people accuse him of being like Stalin when (laughs) when, when he's like this because this is the biggest forced dispersal of people since the Highland clearances of it goes ahead. Leo, do you think the protests have increased pressure on, on government to change its aviation policy? I certainly think it's increased pressure and it's ramped up even more public interest. It's interesting when you talk around the rest of the world how much aviation ranks as a problem and it seems a particularly UK concern at the moment which I applaud the fact that we start to chew on this issue a lot. I sort of agree with Joss really that the consultation if you want to call it that, smacks of being about as coherent and transparent as the nuclear consultation in the fact that there does seem to have been an awful lot of collusion going on between the big players involved. I actually applaud what was done. I think it was right to protest about it and I'm pleased that people are taking up direct action on on such an important issue. Well, we'll have more about this issue later in the show and you can contribute to the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Now, we've heard about moves to get rid of plastic bags, but what if the clothes we wore were biodegradable? Lucy Siegel has been finding out about dresses that disappear after you've worn them. I'm here with Helen Storey, very well-known fashion designer, and we seem to be in a sort of makeshift studio in the middle of London College of Fashion. Why have they made you this, this area here? Well, what we really are is a sort of laboratory on display. We wanted to be able to show people the working process and what goes into making clothes, rather than just the beauty of them at the end when they're finished. So you're sort of on display because there are these blue plastic so panels. Sort of CSI tent is what we were trying to create, something where we're a lab where you can discern what we're doing without necessarily feeling you've got to be in the space itself. Now, what are you doing in this lab? 
We're working on a project that actually began about two years ago and the original idea was to create a brand new material that actually could help the environment in quite a direct way. And it's a science project at its heart. I'm working on a bottle that um, will eventually disappear but using the materials to make into dresses because we often find that when you talk about the environment and, and science it can be quite off-putting. So to use the language and poetry of dress and fashion as a gateway in to talk about things that are a lot more serious and important perhaps than it is what we been doing. So you're using fashion as a way of conveying an environmental idea which is a biodegradable polymer essentially is that right? Yes and the polymer in itself is not new so in a sense we're recycling technology that already exists as opposed to creating technology for technology's sake but um, the dresses that we've got in here will be um, slowly disappearing in Sheffield in in June July in Meadowhall shopping centre and if you like they're a metaphor for our disappearing world because once these dresses are gone they're gone and again it's trying to use sort of not poetic language in an airy fairy way but nobody's frightened of a frock so to be able to use this language and then show them the science behind it is what we're trying to do. I think it's sort of a tragedy in a way because these are beautiful and the thought that they won't be here. Let's, let's go and have a look at this one here. These pieces are actually made of gelatin so they will dissolve in the water but are obviously essentially a food stuff. You'd find them in the bottom of cakes and things like that. But they come up very, very crystallised and we can laser them and make them very, very precise in terms of shapes. But all the polymers come, or all the plastics come to us as uh, very, very clear. On the face of it, it just looks like polythene but different techniques so this lady here is using a heat sealer which is breaking down the molecules and crystallizing them with the heat so what you get in the end is a crystallized looking fabric and these are going to be our crystal jeans so we're taking sort of icons of fashion like the jeans and the jean jacket and the t-shirt but turning them into something extraordinary by using science and technology to break down the fabrics can you just explain what it means in environmental terms what benefits are you trying to gauge from this project well in, in this case i'm trying to get rid of plastic and trying to find alternative ways of getting rid of it. So either you give it a second life and it goes on to become something else. So the concept dress, for example, that I'm working with for Sainsbury's at the moment is going to be printed with seeds. So as the dress dissolves, the seeds sink to the bottom and then grow life. It starts off as a dress, if you like, ends up as giving you further life beyond it. So it's really trying to look at the way we do things and seeing if we can do them any better by working together on this cutting edge of technology. All these fabrics have behaviours inherent in them, if that doesn't sound too mad but when you put one of these fibers close to water it senses it before it even touches it and it starts to recoil so the first piece of knitting we did with this the knitting actually crawled its way back out of the glass and why we're looking at this is that um, when this resorts to a gel the gel has the same behavior properties as soil so we can grow things in it so we're very much in between the worlds of art and science. And as I say, we don't have all the answers, but it seems to me we're onto something extremely exciting. So what does this tell us? Does this tell us anything about curbing our consumerist tendencies? Well, what I hope it does, it's very important these dresses are beautiful because we do want people to have that emotional connection to a subject that is so vast, they often feel very isolated from it. So by making something beautiful in front of your very eyes disappear, it allows people to make an emotional connection to a subject that is actually quite a cold and frightening one. I think we've tried all sorts of methods by making people feel guilty by threatening them with the end of the world and and these don't really work and unless we can find a way to trigger people to change their habits through humor and awe as opposed to through threat and guilt that we probably are all doomed but isn't this very theoretical what sort of impact could it have on the way that we behave as fashion consumers i think in some ways you've got to do the thinking for consumers because it's very effortful to recycle and all the best of us do you never really get a sense of what impact that's having on the overall so i think we've got to 
to start attacking, if you like, things like carrier bags as well and packaging. And a further use of this technology, which again we're right at the beginning stages of, is if you could endow in a carrier bag the kind of chemicals that would sort out water treatment further down the line, you could in essence do maybe once every six weeks a carrier bag washing full machine washed, purely dedicated to carrier bags. And then those chemicals would go down into the sewage works and sort out solids from <laughs> liquids, which at the moment the chemical industry spends a huge amount of money to do that particular thing. So we're trying to think holistically. We're trying to bring people that wouldn't normally talk together in industry together to come up with these solutions. Maybe in a few years' time, this will have a very, very big impact um, on society and people's shopping habits. So the next time we see these, are they going to be in Sheffield? They will be. They will be in a kind of boutique of the future, if you like. And they'll each be above a sort of giant witch's cauldron, if you like, of clear water. And we slowly suspend them so they all drop. I think it's about 110 centimetres a day, depending on the height of them. But by the end of the exhibition, nothing will be left. You'll just be left with pools of water. I think you're going to be left with lots of weeping fashionistas saying, please don't get rid of that dress. Well, that'd be helpful as well. (laughs) But in a sense, isn't it like burning these beautiful creations? It's the lack of permanency which I'm having an issue with because they're just so lovely. We live in the West and on a daily level we don't actually experience what it means to be without. And I think you need very, very powerful metaphors. It'll be too late the day our pavements open up in cracks and we fall down the middle or too late when we can't drink our own water. So I think we've got to use all we have at our resources to make these things important in Western eyes. And if it takes someone crying because a beautiful dress disappears, then so be it. That was Lucy Siegel talking to the fashion designer Helen Storey. And you'll be able to see those dresses disappearing in the Meadowhall Shopping Centre in Sheffield in May. I'm Alison Benjamin. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we hear why the vanishing honeybee is an environmental crisis. Bees are barometer the environment, so, I mean, they come in contact with everything. Now, if you want to do something with your local community to tackle climate change but don't know where to begin, you may gain some inspiration from the Wiltshire town of Marlborough. For our campaign of the week, we meet Beck Dawson, one of the founders of the Marlborough Climate Change Group. Hi, my name is Beck Dawson. I'm from the group called Marlborough Climate Pledge. It's a small market town in Wiltshire called Marlborough. And a group of four of us got together a couple of years ago and uh, decided we had massive whinging about climate change and thought we'd do something. So this is our story. We um, decided that if we could get as many people in our local community together, we could take some action and feel like together we were making a real difference to climate change and carbon emissions. So over the course of a few years, we've put together a program asking local people to do something in the everyday things that they do to reduce their rate of carbon emissions. This means some really simple things, as much as changing their light bulbs to low energy light bulbs, changing their car dannies, walking and cycling more in the local area, plus bigger things like installing renewable energy on individual homes and businesses in the town, and also taking some quite significant personal challenges, like deciding to take no flights in the course of everyday holidays and business travel. So in all of this, it's really just a community project. I guess the most interesting thing about it is a number of people who've come along who said, actually, they really wanted to do something about climate change but didn't know where to start. 
and perhaps felt that their own journey was a bit helpless when there were so many big carbon emissions that needed to be saved in the UK. But by working together, we've been able to make a much bigger difference. We get together monthly, we have quite a steady membership. We have 250 households involved in the town now, and we're just now calculating the total carbon emission savings we've had as a town. Our next ideas are to get involved with more businesses, the town council, and maybe further afield looking at transport links, particularly where we live. Our website is climatepledge.org.uk. You can find plenty more information there about all of our activities, our successes and some of the things that we've found hard. I would encourage anybody in a similar situation to have a go at putting together a few people in a small group to try and make a difference to climate change. Working together, we can do something much more positive than feeling alone in a sea of bad press about global warming and climate change. That was Beck Dawson of the Marlborough Climate Change Group. And you could join the 4,000 people who have signed up to The Guardian's Tread Lightly initiative. By pledging to cut down on meat-eating this week, you could save at least 3,220 grams of CO2. To pledge, go to guardian.co.uk slash treadlightly. Now, a third of everything we eat is pollinated by honeybees. Without them, most fruit and vegetables won't grow. Neither would crops we feed cattle. That's why a mysterious disease that's wiped out millions of honeybees across the world is being called an environmental crisis. I went to California to find out what's causing the bees to vanish. Colony collapse disorder is a mysterious disease that's led to millions of honeybees disappearing around the world. A third of everything we eat is pollinated by honeybees, so there are fears that this is an environmental crisis bigger than climate change. Around 40 billion bees are needed to pollinate California's vast acres of almond trees in February. It's the largest commercial pollination event on the planet, and California exports 80% of the world's almonds. So beekeepers from all over America truck their bees west. But isn't pollination on such a huge scale putting too many demands on the bees and leading to their demise? I've come to California to find out. First, I've come to visit Joe Trainer, a bee broker, matching beekeepers with almond growers. I think viruses are part of the problem with colony collapse, but if you're, again, in good, healthy condition, you can resist that. There was a recent study that showed when you're trucking bees long uh, distances, two or three days travel, that the uh, bees need sleep just as, as humans need sleep and they're, they're bouncing around in the truck, keeps them awake uh, for two or three days and, again, lowers their immunity to uh, pests and disease and, and they're not near as resistant uh, so they can succumb to problems. Uh. So what do you think needs to be done to solve the problem? Well, the ultimate answer would be a, a resistant bee and there's several people working on that. There is some resistant lines of honeybees out there. A lot of good people are doing a lot of good work on, on this but they have been for five or ten years and we're, we're still having problems. I'm David Hackenberg, and I'm a commercial beekeeper. I'm based on the East Coast. Uh, I'm standing here in Wasco, California this morning, unloading bees and cold. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. 6 o'clock in the morning, yeah. And, uh, time of morning we work, night and morning. We just had a load of bees come in from Florida this morning. Actually, two loads come in. Uh, we're unloading one here, and one load went a little bit further west. In these beehives, there's probably right now 20,000 bees per hive. And these bees have come about probably about 2,600 miles, 2,600, 2,700 miles. So it takes about three and a half, four days usually, depends how hard a driver's drive. We have bees that are out here too that will be basically by mid-April be going back to Pennsylvania and New York to pollinate apples. And then on to Maine to pollinate blueberries in uh, middle of May. This particular load of bees you're looking at here will probably end up in cranberries before the summer's over in Massachusetts. Some of the bees that are out here will 
go to Maine and then on to pumpkins, pollinate pumpkins and vegetables and in the Northeast. And How many colonies did you lose in that first year? Last year it was 80%, 70%, 80% And this year? It's probably about 55, 60%. So what do you think is behind colony collapse disorder? Something has messed up the bees' immune system, caused memory loss. Uh, they're not eating. I mean, the bees have this problem. So, I mean, we got to look at something that can break down immune systems, cause insects to quit eating, and forget where they're at until they can't come home. And, you know, when we started realizing this was where the problem was, and bees are barometer the environment. So, I mean, they come in contact with everything. I've grown up in a farm in business, and I own a farm, and so on and so forth. You start looking to see what changed in the bees' environment, you know, agriculture. And the thing that changed was, in the last number of years, we have gone to systemic pesticides that come up through the plants, go into the flowers. I'm Frank Eichen, and I work for the United States Department of Agriculture out of Westlake, Texas. This research project is being done at the request of some beekeepers and almond growers, and it basically involves testing a new commercial product that is a synthetic brood pheromone. And the concept here is that this pheromone, which mimics young bees needing food, will stimulate the adult bees to collect more pollen from these almond trees. And is the reason that you're conducting this research partly attributable to colony collapse disorder and concerns amongst almond growers that there may not be enough bees around? With the dearth of bees that we have, it could secondarily cause uh, some colonies are fairly small to be acceptable to growers. And what do you think is behind colony collapse disorder? We have to eliminate two very important problems and that is the parasite varroa and its attendant problems and nutritional stress. Once those two are under control and we're still having problems, now we've got a field of play where we can begin to delve deeper and see what's causing the problem. What about beekeeping on the vast scale that we see here in California? How does that impact on the health of the bees? We've been told that this industry is mechanized, we're a bunch of mechanized gypsies moving all of the stock around. You know, other stock gets shipping fever. When you ship an animal in a semi-trailer across the country, and it's fairly common that they can get sick. We don't know if bees suffer from that or not. We, we should look into it. And someday, in the very near future, we probably will. Pretty soon, or else the bees might not be here. They probably are not all dying to shipping fever or the equivalent thereof because we've been doing it for quite a while. But it could be something that is enough, is stressful enough to, to some of them that uh, it's important. I'm Alison Benjamin, and you're listening to Environment Weekly on guardian.co.uk. With me in the studio is Joss Garman. Joss only left university last year, but he's been campaigning on environmental issues for about eight years. Joss, you've been dubbed the new Swampy, you've been arrested over 20 times, and you've helped to set up anti-aviation group Plain Stupid. In addition to all that, your day job is as a climate campaigner at Greenpeace. Plain Stupid's focus has been on trying to stop the proposed third runway at Heathrow. What success do you think you've actually had so far? Well, I think it's incredible that when we set up Plane Stupid in 2005, really no one was really talking about the impact of flying on climate change. None of the national environmental groups like Greenpeace, WWF, Friends of the Earth were working on aviation. It really wasn't being discussed in any big way. At the time, we felt aviation then was already the fastest growing cause of climate change, um, and it was growing like massively. It grows at around 7% a year, aviation in this country. And so 
that's why we kind of chose to focus on aviation. But I think it's now you can't open a newspaper without seeing climate change and aviation being talked about in this synonymously. And this week, I think, has been a pretty eventful week in that, as well as, as the protests by Greenpeace at Heathrow and playing stupid at the House of Commons, we've had the Sun newspaper come out basically expressing lots of doubt about the third runway, like you could even say came out against the third runway. Sunday Times called it monumentally stupid, said this really is plain stupid, was the headline <laughs> of their editorial. And they said, you know, how can Gordon Brown claim to be green when he's trying to build a third runway? So I think you're starting to see this debate really move mainstream in a big way. And it's becoming such a political hot potato that, for example, last week, Minister Anne Keane, so someone in Brown's cabinet, a health minister, broke cabinet ranks to come out against Third Runway because she's a West London MP and she knows she's going to lose her seat if she doesn't. So I think it's incredible the political space that's opened up and the fact that now virtually all the NGOs in the country who work on climate change have a campaigner focused on aviation. I think the issue of the Third Runway was always going to be the defining moment in a way because it's going to affect essentially two million residents of West London or whatever it is. It combines with our concerns about climate change, but also combines with the sort of NIMBY element of having huge noise pollution going overhead and air pollution. I'm not surprised it's become a big issue. People do love flying, don't they? People do love their short-haul flights. I don't think that really is is an issue neither here nor there. It's a big problem. It is the fastest-growing source of CO2 emissions. It's not up there, obviously, with car pollution and big industry or the energy we need to heat our homes, but it is one of the key areas where we can actually individually... Make a difference, whereas you could argue it's very hard to change the way our housing stock is insulated overnight. But we do clearly, in the era of cheap flights, make a lot of whimsical decisions about where we just go on holiday and we could choose not to go there. What's significant as well is that Brits are like the Americans of the skies, and Brits mm. fly way more than any other people on the planet. We fly more than double Americans fly, and it's not because we're an island, because we fly more than double the Japanese, more than double the Irish. We fly so much because our train system's so rubbish, basically. You can see that about a fifth of flights from Heathrow, about 100,000 a year, to places less than 500 kilometres away. So places you can reach on the train in less than three hours. Mm. But given that road vehicles are actually the biggest contributor to transport CO2 emissions, why didn't you set up something like Car Stupid? One of our focuses on aviation was because aviation contributes 13% of the UK's climate impacts. That's staggering. It's about 6.5% of our emissions, but because of the effects of releasing gases at altitude, it's about double that. So it's around 13% of the UK's climate impact. Well, actually, when you look at it like that, it works out more than road transport it works out more than the amount released from houses and so it's really significant but also if we can tackle aviation where there is no techno fix where it's the fastest growing cause of climate change then we can definitely tackle other areas like energy where there are techno fixes we could be investing in renewable energy decentralized energy we could meet our energy security needs and cut emissions through technological fixes well we can't do that with aviation because there's no green fuel on the horizon and so i think by tackling in a sense the hardest part and a part which is majorly significant and a part which has had a total free-for-all with all their tax breaks and expansion plans paid for by the government and all the collusion and everything. If you can tackle that, then you can really tackle the rest of the economy's contribution. With the um, Heathrow consultation document having pages and pages of questions for the public to fill out, to register their opposition, and a number of public exhibitions devoted to displaying the airport's plans, how can you accuse the government of failing to seek out alternative views? Well, actually, it's astonishing. If you read the consultation document, one, 
it just reads like gobbledygook. You can't understand it. It's full of like technical terminology that no Londoner is going to understand. It's been condemned by the plain English campaign, which is kind of respectable group, just for being basically nonsensical. You can't make head nor tail of it. But also, it doesn't actually ask the question, do you want a third runway? That question isn't in there. Gordon Brown didn't have the courage to ask Londoners, do you want a third runway? So... That's taken as red, and it's all about mixed mode and which direction the flight's going and what level of parts per million and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't just ask people, do you want a third runway? And it makes no mention of climate change because that's not considered to be within the remit of the consultation. So whilst it talks about noise levels in a really technical way so that you can barely understand that, it doesn't even mention global warming, which is the big one when it comes to the third runway. So I think this consultation has just been a sham from start to finish, and it's been condemned as that by you know people across the political spectrum Really, the idea that there's been any kind of transparency and participation in this consultation is an absolute joke. What do you say to people like the CBI who who claim that the UK's economy is dependent on us having a third runway at Heathrow, that if we don't, companies will be forced to relocate and that good air links are essential for success in a global economy? Well, one thing worth pointing out is that President Sarkozy, who's hardly a militant green, has just ordered airport expansion to be frozen across France because of climate change. We already have the world's biggest airport in London and we know that most of these flights are to places like Paris and Manchester so you're hardly going to get on a train go to Paris to fly to Paris a lot of their arguments just fall apart as soon as you look at them but also CE Delft which is a massive economic consultancy it's used by the Dutch and German governments it's actually been used by the aviation industry themselves published a big report last week at the London Stock Exchange called the economics of the Heathrow expansion they said that the claim to the industry had been totally overblown and do we really think that Boris Johnson and Ken Livingstone would be coming out against a third runway if they thought it was essential for London's business. Mm. It's rubbish. I mean, it's just propaganda from business, Mm. basically. BA's chief executive, Willie Walsh, said that by the time the third runway becomes operational, aviation emissions will be capped by the EU carbon trading scheme. So airlines will only be able to fly more if they can pay for equivalent emission reductions in other industries. So overall, there won't actually be an increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. Well, one thing worth mentioning is that the emissions trading scheme in relation to aviation isn't going to come into effect till 2012, by which point emissions will have grown considerably. And Stern warned when he did the Stern review that we shouldn't lock ourselves into infrastructure that ensures high levels of emissions in decades to come. Well, if we build runways now, then what we're saying is that when emissions trading kicks in, we'll just have stranded assets all over the place. That's one thing. But also Ernst & Young, you know, the respected financiers, they did some scenario modelling and they said that even under the strictest emissions trading scheme, so even if you had 100% auctioning where the airlines had to buy their permits to pollute, even if you had a separate system so they couldn't buy credits in from elsewhere, even if you put in radius enforcing factors and all the rest of it, to take account of the increased impact from releasing at high altitude. Even if you did all of those things, aviation would still grow by 83% in comparison with 86% at business as usual. And that's not, you know, Greenpeace, that's Ernst mm. & Young. Mm. So really, I think the idea that emissions trading is a solution to this, it, it just doesn't add up. And the European Commission and the Tories even have said that. So, Joss, with the consultation on the third runway now closed... Is there any more that anti-aviation protesters like yourself can achieve? Well, I think we have to make sure that this doesn't just bubble away now. Um, We need to really make sure that we keep 
building the movement. And what we have now, you know, a couple of days ago, the National Trust, the biggest organisation in Britain, basically, with three and a half million members, came out against the third runway. And so you really have like an army of protesters lining up, everyone from like the friends of various National Trust type properties in West London, through to the climate campers and people who are prepared to take direct action. And actually what you're seeing is ordinary people who have never been on a process before, who are absolutely law-abiding, taking direct action for the first time. And we're seeing it becoming a political issue where people could lose their seats over it. And so I think it's not going to go away, but what we have to do is maintain the level of momentum. You know, there are other issues that are shooting up the agenda, like this summer the government are looking at giving permission to build Britain's first new coal-fired power station in more than 30 years. Well, that would pollute more than 30 entire countries combined, and they want to build it this summer. So the climate change movement are facing dilemmas in terms of, well, what are we going to concentrate on? And when they've got that that they want to build this summer and the third runway that they don't want to build till 2017, you can understand why yesterday the climate camp announced that they're going to Kings North in Kent to try and stop the coal plant being built. That's later this summer, yeah? Yeah, so that'll be in August. Actually, the first day of their of their camp is they're going to hold an event at Heathrow to basically say, look, we haven't gone away. We are going to stop your runway. In the meantime, we've got to go stop this coal plant. But it's kind of indicative of where the government's at. I do think it's certainly interesting times ahead, but I do I do agree it is a slight dilemma to know which way to look in terms of kind of... The stakes are so high now that mm. if even one of these projects goes ahead, so even if we have the third runway and not Kings North or Kings North and not the third runway, we still probably wouldn't meet our climate change targets because of it. We have to really stop all of these things. But it is encouraging that the level of public opposition that's building up to Heathrow and the way that it's shot up the political agenda means I genuinely think that we're going to win this one. I mean, it's not often like you constantly as a campaigner banging your head against a brick wall but it feels like we can win on the third runway and if people listening to you are encouraged and want to take part in eco process and do something what what's your advice for them i mean there's so many groups out there what i would say is that people shouldn't kind of spend their time working out whether or not the product they just bought in sainsbury's was flown in they should focus that time by investing in campaigns and their energy and time and money into campaign groups because there's so many of them now that you can pick your issue really do you want to focus on the massive emissions coming from energy in which case you know greenpeace the main group working on energy or if you want to focus on aviation then you can go to um wwf have an aviation campaign or plain stupid if you want to get more hands-on um but there's so many groups out there it's really frustrating when people say oh it's so bad isn't it but what can i do you go and get involved with these groups that's why they're there and they can only work because ordinary people make them work and what about those people who argue well there's no point me doing anything because it's all about what happens in china anyway it's interesting because this seems to be like the new line from the skeptics first first they were like climate change doesn't exist and then they're like oh it's too late because china's building two new coal plants a week well actually we could be selling china state-of-the-art clean technologies what's interesting is that when blair used to go on it was especially blair i mean you still hear it from the government but he used to go on about britain's only two percent of global emissions well no actually if you take into account all the manufacturing that's moved from britain and from europe to china the tyndall center the leading climate research station at manchester university they did a report a few months ago and worked out that a quarter of China's emissions are actually OECD countries' emissions that have been exported because the manufacturing base has shifted to China. So we've really got to think about who's taking responsibility for these emissions in China. Is it us, the people consuming these goods that are being made, or is it Chinese people who have a tiny carbon footprint in comparison with us? Okay, well, thanks very much, Joss. That's all we have time for in this edition of Environment Weekly. Many thanks to my guests, Joss Garman and Leo Hickman, and to my producer, Ian Chambers. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. Listening. 
For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.